Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, and I'm co-host of this channel. Now, Buddhism has always been a world religion, but its popularity in the West really dates only from the late 19th century, when much of the Buddhist world was uh, subject to European colonial rule. Of all those Westerners who became interested in and sought to promote Buddhism at the time, one of the most unusual and interesting is a guy called U Damaloka, an Irishman who went native and became a Buddhist monk in British Burma at the turn of the 20th century. Damaloka is now the subject of a fascinating new book, The Irish Buddhist, The Forgotten Monk Who Faced Down the British Empire, co-written by Alicia Turner, Lawrence Cox and Brian Bocking. Beyond the story of this intrepid Irishman, uh, this book is also a social history of British Burma at the height of European imperialism. But what is distinctive about this social history is its focus on white working-class Europeans in the highly cosmopolitan colonial states of this time. Some of them, and Damaloka was one of them, shared political sympathies with the Asian subjects of these colonial states. Today I'm talking to Alicia Turner, who is co-author of this book. She's Associate Professor of Humanities and Religious Studies at York University in Toronto, Canada. Alicia, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Congratulations on the book. I think it just came out a couple of months ago, right? It did. And actually, the print books are finally out. It's wonderful to be here on New Books in Southeast Asia. So thank you for this. Before we get on to talking about the book, we always like to ask authors a little bit about themselves. Can you tell us how you became interested in Buddhism and in Burmese and Southeast Asian history? My first interest was in the study of religion because I was particularly interested in understanding how religious ideas, discourses came to shape society. So I was interested in that set of interactions. And from there, Buddhism seemed to pose challenges and sort of push against European models for how religion operates in society. So it was first religion and then Buddhism. And then looking at the Theravada world, my undergraduate advisor had worked in Sri Lanka. There were folks who'd worked in Thailand, but there weren't very many people working in Burma at the time. So I decided to go for the challenge of a place that was a little harder to work on back then and wound up in Burma. And by the time I'd made it into the tea houses of Rangoon, I knew it was the right place. It's an intellectual culture, an engaged culture, a place that really loves its own history. So it was kind of the ideal place for an academic when I got going. And so my original work was really on colonial Burma and thinking through how Buddhist movements had constructed identity and had operated and forms of identity against and in relation to the colonial state. 
This book is a collaborative effort. Your co-writers are Lawrence Cox and Brian Bocking, who actually work in different fields. And the story of how you guys got together to write the book, I think is really interesting. From a reader's point of view, I felt that the collaboration was much more than the sum of its parts. Can you tell us how you came together to work on this project? It has been a really fun project and fun collaboration because of it. As you said, we work in really different fields. So my my specialty was a Southeast Asian history and, and Burmese Buddhism, really. And when I've been doing the research for my original book, uh, reading through the newspapers from the end of the 19th and the turn of the 20th century, I kept coming along this odd figure of Udomaloka, this Irishman in, in Rangoon. And this, the little bits I would see in the paper were fascinating, but trying to be a good scholar, I said, okay, I'll put them in a drawer and come back to them later. But the story of how the three of us got together comes down to a footnote. It is the most academic of academic stories. I had seen these little notes and had mentioned them to my friend, Alexei Karachenko, who had written an article that was going to go in an edited volume. In one footnote, he just dropped in and, you know, figures like the Irish Buddhist Udamaloka in the work of Alicia Turner. It turns out that Brian Bocking was reviewing the book, saw the footnote, and he wrote me an email saying, I've just come to found a department for the study of religion here in Cork in Ireland, and I'd really like to know more about this Irish Buddhist. At the same time this was going on, Lawrence Cox, who is a social movement scholar, was also writing a history of Buddhism in Ireland. And he found in a radical publication from the United States, a reference to an Irish Buddhist. So... Out of all of this, we eventually got together and started collaborating. The kind of research I do is really based on you know, small references in popular periodicals. So the kind of archival work I do is often with newspapers, Buddhist journals, any records I can get of Buddhist associations, that sort of thing. And so once we all got together, we started doing this work together. So they could have much better access to the European end of things. Lawrence's specialty in social movements really helped let us see how Damaloka fit into a variety of historical movements of the mid and late 19th century and where he might have been. And then eventually, uh, once we came together, Brian took on the Japanese part uh, of Damaloka's travels and the, the parts in Australia. I was looking more at the Southeast Asia and, and, and Lawrence could sort of move us through his time first in Ireland and then in North America. I highly recommend collaborative work like this because <laughs> those exciting moments in the archives that you have or when you happen to find a digitized source that, that actually you know, addresses your figure, you have somebody to write to and get excited with. There's actually one moment when we first discovered the book written by Harry Frank, where all three of us had realized the book existed, and two of us were in our cars trying to drive frantically to a library that had it, and there was a great celebration. So it has been a fun, fun work to do together. It's great to hear happy stories about collaboration. It doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> Tell us about uh, the central figure in this book, the Irish monk known in British Burma as Udamaloka, a.k.a. Lawrence Carroll, a.k.a. Larry O'Rourke, a.k.a. William Colvin. I think you write that he has a few other aliases. Who was he? How did he end up in British Burma? As you, as you mentioned, we have an, a large number of aliases and... There's a good possibility that there are chunks of his life that he was trying to escape by using different names. So we've been able to piece together what fragments we have of, a, of his life prior to being ordained as a Buddhist monk in Rangoon and some social history around that. The figure we think that's most likely that we can find in genealogical work and this sort of thing 
was born in Blackrock, Booterstown, which is just outside of Dublin. And it was really at that point more of a small, small town that was being incorporated into the growing metropolitan center of Dublin. And it's also just down from the largest docks that was being built right then. So the kinds of things that were happening across the world, the rise of shipping and eventually steamships, the kind of large-scale emigration from Ireland that happened would have been right in the man who became Damaloka's world at that point. We think he is born about the 1850s. We don't know much about his youth. The stories we have, that some of which are what he recounts himself in sources to other people, some of which get republished and probably elaborated quite a bit in, in other sources around, tell us that he from a young age, left from Ireland, went to England briefly, and then became a sailor, sailed the lines to the United States, and in the United States became a hobo. Joined what we know really was a large group of homeless and migrant laborers across the United States in the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War. And from looking at what we know of his migrant labor across North America in this point, and he really goes from New York to San Francisco, and clearly he was hopping trains, taking small jobs here and there, interacting with large groups of people across this time. It gives us a great opportunity to kind of look at what it meant to be working class migrant labor in this time period. And some really interesting things pop up. Later on, we know that Damaloka has a very political bent to what he's doing, but you begin to see that where you might perceive a migrant labor, impoverished class of men who are itinerant and moving around North America, actually the places where they get together have a really vibrant and, and interesting intellectual culture and political culture. So you have hobos bookshops and associations that meet together to debate ideas and people who pass books back and forth. So it's actually a fairly vibrant intellectual world. What we know is that he works on boats in California for a while, on fruit boats, and then eventually again signs on to be a sailor between uh, San Francisco and Yokohama. We don't know how many times, how long he's on that. He's back and forth a bit. But eventually he decides to leave the ship in Rangoon. He gets a job as a tally clerk. So... Lawrence is very conscious to tell me we should be talking about plebeian and not working class because the tally clerk is a bit has a, has a bit more status than the sailors and the laborers around him. In 1900, Damaloka had been related to and and probably living at a monastery called the Tavoy Monastery in a monastic complex right in downtown Yangon, Rangoon. Uh, the monastic complex is known as Theyepda, um, which is just the mango grove. But he had been at this monastery, and in 1900, he's ordained as a Buddhist monk with a quorum of monks in Rangoon, but his sponsor is comes out of this toy-related monastery in Rangoon. And from there, he goes on to an absolutely sensational career across Asia and mostly in Southeast Asia. He is bombastic critic of British colonialism. He picks up from his Irish roots and Irish politics, probably both in Ireland and in North America, this critique of the colonial world. He has a critique of, of missionary colonialism in particular. So he's really interested in the ways in which missionary Christianity has transformed uh, Burma. And he comes to tell the Burmese 
The missionaries are a threat to you. He has this reference to the Bible, the bottle, and the gun. These are the ills that colonialism brings to you. He, from there, becomes actually a very, very popular preacher across Burma. He goes on a number of quite long preaching tours to the north, to the south. He really sort of crosses the country in that way. And he is met by crowds of thousands. The Burmese populace seem to really appreciate him. And everything we know of him as a Buddhist monk, he performs correctly. He goes out and collects alms. He mostly walks barefoot. He knows how to act and perform as a Buddhist monk in really correct ways until he's asked to preach. And usually when he is asked to preach, he immediately says, you know, listen, there are much smarter Burmese monks than I. They can tell you about the Dhamma much better than I can. Let me tell you instead about the evils of colonialism, the evils of missionary Christianity. His, his career takes him really across Asia and Southeast Asia. He goes to Japan. He comes to Singapore, to Penang, to Bangkok. He has travels in Sri Lanka and connects with Angarka Dhammapala there. And the work we did was really to track him in each of these places. I love the idea of hobo bookshops because I guess when you think of, and this is a, a prejudice, of course, when you think of sort of working class or plebeians, you don't see them as, as kind of intellectual consumers. But your book shows that Dhamma Lorca was influenced by political and social movements in the West at the time, in particular anti-clericalism, the free thought movement in the, in the US, Irish nationalism, of course, and even interestingly, the temperance movement. Can you say a little bit about how these movements sort of sat with his understanding of Buddhism? I think very much that for Dhammaloka, these political causes and Buddhism were of a whole. I think he saw in Buddhism a place to belong, but he very much saw it in line with the political positions that he held. So as a white person aligning himself with Buddhism by ordaining, by going native as he was, and he was critiqued quite a bit as having gone native. In that way, he was making a pretty clear stance against colonialism and the civilizing mission. He was really taken as traitorous to the colonial officials of the time and to much of the white population of Rangoon. But he really thought that Buddhism was aligned with temperance and that alcohol was a threat. He very much understood that to be Buddhist was to be anti-clerical, to be engaged in freethinker movements. His politics, I think he saw as fairly integrated. So whereas we would say he drew from the freethinker and atheist movements, he drew from Thomas Paine, he drew from uh, Irish radicalism or other aspects of Irish nationalism that were coming in, I think actually he just understood those simply to be one of the same. So when he publishes Buddhist Tract Society, eventually he publishes reprints of all sorts of things. He'll publish Buddhist pamphlets, discussions of Buddhism, and in the next pages, uh, he or in the same series, he has republished Thomas Paine. And he, you know, similarly, he goes after and critiques Christian temperance movements operating in Rangoon because he feels like they aren't sufficiently temperance or they aren't sufficiently defending and protecting the people of Burma. So for him, these all become integrated in one way. But it gives us this wonderful opportunity to look at how those conversations were happening and what gets studied as discrete movements, but actually are very much interactive. Right? The hobo bookshelves or the bookshelves of the sailor's home or other materials were flowing through all sorts of places like this and in conversation with each other. People weren't thinking, ah, now I am looking at the anti-clerical movement or now I'm looking at the anti-colonial movement. People were much more 
eclectic in that way. This is a book about a man and maybe also about men. And I think you say somewhere, write somewhere, that Damaloka had a limited number of relationships with women. Um, his vow of celibacy, of course, as a Buddhist monk is is, is required. What, what I didn't know was that social conditions in Ireland after the Great Famine, particularly the change in the inheritance law, and, of course, the Catholic Church pushed men into single-sex environments and, and often, whether by necessity or by choice, celibacy. So I was wondering how important was this by comparison with Damaloka's understanding of and commitment to Buddhism? I learned a lot out of this from from both Brian and Lawrence. And really, Lawrence was giving us the sort of larger history of Ireland and what was happening there. And we had lots of conversations about gender early on because there's a few women he interacts with. There's a Canadian journalist who does a long interview with him that's really that ends up really fascinating, kind of shapes us our understanding of him early on. But really, there's almost no women in the story. And we were having a conversation about, you know, what's the role of gender within this? I think that Damaloka found in the single sex environment of Buddhist monasticism a place that seemed fairly at home to him and otherwise. As you said, after the famine, the idea that there really wasn't land to inherit and there really wasn't resources to be able to start a family, you have mass emigration out of, of Ireland. And uh, men in particular would have ended up in sailing, in laboring gangs, and all sorts of other places that were really single sex places. So Damaloka or the man who became Damaloka would not have had lots of interaction with women prior to ordaining as a Buddhist monk. And I think that continues on in his position as a monk. He travels, most of the people he's organizing with in Bangkok and Penang, other places are men. So I think it's an environment that he feels comfortable within. And we get a sense that he actually doesn't feel all that comfortable around women. You've already talked about his uh, Damaloka's anti-colonial sentiments. The book uh, discusses how he gets caught up or, or is involved in the anti-colonial movement in Burma in the in the early decades of the 20th century, and particularly in this famous so-called shoe contra- uh, controversy, which kind of marks the beginning of the Burmese nationalist movement. Can you tell us a little bit about this controversy and uh, Damaloka's role in it? I seem to write a lot about shoes. When I was first working and looking at the shoe controversy for my first book in Saving Buddhism, Jamaloka was there in the issue. Like he had, he was present in in the controversies. In some ways, Burmese nationalism has often been uh, narrated as the shoe controversy is the turning point for the nationalist movement. The issue is that uh, Burmese Buddhists remove their shoes before they step onto a pagoda, a stupa, because a stupa is a reliquary. It holds the relics of the Buddha below the ground, and no one in Southeast Asia would be so gross as to step with your dirty, disgusting, and defiling shoes onto the relics of the Buddha. But whereas in Thailand and other places in Southeast Asia, you remove your shoes just outside, in Burma, you remove your shoes really the minute you enter onto the hill surrounding the pagoda. So the Shwedagon Pagoda in Yangon is a massive hill with long covered stairways going up. When the British arrive, they basically exempt themselves from the idea that they have to uh, remove shoes. And they say things like, well, uh, for what's respectful in our culture is to remove our hats. So we'll remove our hats and you remove your shoes. Now, the politics of equating heads and feet within this clearly have, have some implications of hierarchies there. There are some other controversies that happened a little bit earlier. And so the policy has been that other Asians should be removing their shoes, except for those who are in uniform. But on the night of the biggest pagoda festival at the Shwedagon, 
Damaloka confronts an Indian police officer who's wearing his shoes on the platform. And he confronts him, says he must leave, says he must take off his shoes. The officer calls other English police officers to him and creates a particular confrontation. And then it becomes the controversy around town that he has basically called out authority and said, you're not allowed to come and trample in our religion. And the claim is that he said, we, you've stolen their country from them and now you've come and trampled on their religion. Now, we don't, can't prove that he said that, in part because the prosecutors wanted to use that phrase as a claim um, that he had said something seditious and to go after him legally for sedition. Ultimately, they can't get anybody who will witness against him, who will testify against him. So that claim for sedition doesn't go forward. But it sets up his career in the earliest days as siding with the Burmese and against British colonialism in some very explicit and political ways, and really in defense of Buddhism, which he understands to be a defense of Buddhism to, to be the same as a defense of the Burmese in, against colonialism. Damaloka, of course, is not just uh, involved in promoting or defending Buddhism in, in Burma, but he becomes involved in the establishment of Pan-Asian Buddhist organizations that, that are kind of that are springing up, or, or I guess they were already been around for a little while, but uh, were becoming more active at this time. Can you talk uh, talk about these organizations and how important he was to their operations? We tend to sort of narrate the idea of what is problematically called a Buddhist revival or the birth of Buddhist modernism in terms of international networks that happen in the last decades of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And we tell it really in terms of large figures. So Colonel Olcott, Anagarka Dharmapala, the Mahabodhi Society, the Japanese organizations that send uh, missionaries, but also sort of connections back and forth, or perhaps relationships between the Thai king and Japan. That's, it's a really elite narrative. It's a narrative that looks both at the actions of either elites or at least middle-class folks. And then when it goes more broadly, we think in terms of those people who are connected by print capitalism, and in particular, those who are able to read and understand English, who are connected by journals, associations, interactions. And that story is certainly true. There are movements afoot to create international Buddhist associations. Certainly the Mahabodhi Society is the most famous of those. But there were a number of movements, some out of Japan, attempting to create something like this, International Young Men's Buddhist Associations. Damaloka is connected to them in peripheral ways. Uh, The reason he goes to Japan originally is because he and others have heard a rumor that there's going to be a follow-up to the 1893 World Parliaments of Religion. When he arrives, the plans have been put off, and he he goes to a couple of conferences. And Japan is the one place in where Damaloka is a little bit culturally tone-deaf. He doesn't really fit in very well in Japan. He makes a great name for himself most where, elsewhere in Southeast Asia and does quite well in Sri Lanka. But in Japan, he isn't. Uh, he's a little bit outside of things. But he's there at the founding of what is called the International Young Men's Buddhist Association. Now, we don't know that this actually has any official connections to the more famous Young Men's Buddhist Associations in Sri Lanka or a little bit later in Burma. But he goes on to use that as one of the titles of who he's affiliated with and uses the name International YMBA 
a bit in his travels when he begins to start organizing in Singapore and in Penang and then in Bangkok. But actually what his story does for us is to really complicate the idea that it was people who were only English um, educated or that it was only elites and middle class who were engaged in this. Because the organizing that Damaloka does in Bangkok and in Singapore, in Penang, and certainly across his, his preaching across Burma, really grows in a much, much broader swath of society. It tends to be multi-ethnic. It tends to really draw on poor and working class uh, children to come to the schools that he organizes. It has a much broader range within that. Damaloka is a correspondent with Anagarka Damapala, and eventually Damapala invites him to Sri Lanka for a preaching tour, which really gets both Damaloka and Damapala in trouble with uh, elites in Sri Lanka who don't like this bombastic, over-the-top, anti-colonial rabble-rouser coming around. But his work is not the same as, say, what we understood as the Mahabodhi Society. Um, It has a politics of respectability to it. Damaloka is not really interested in a politics of respectability for the most part. At this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the broader social and political movements that were influencing all Damaloka's activities at the time. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Alicia Turner about her new book, co-written with Lawrence Cox and Brian Bocking, The Irish Buddhist, The Forgotten Monk Who Faced Down the British Empire. Your book seems to fit within the kind of global history trend in historiography that is more and more popular these days. So, for example, you link British imperialism in Burma and uh, Southeast Asia with British rule in Ireland on the other side of the world. Uh, the free thought, thought movement in the United States. You just mentioned uh, Damalok links with Japan. And in the, I think early on in the book, you write that uh, the research in required understanding, this is a quote, required understanding historical events and popular movements in Ireland, England, the United States, Japan, India, Australia, and Southeast Asia. I'm just wondering how you think that this, this global history approach might change how we understand the history of Burma and perhaps also Southeast Asia. In some ways, I haven't thought of this as as within a trend of global history necessarily. I think it actually does work well for that. But I think it really is a Southeast Asia story in the sense that it reminds us that these are always global stories. We might think of sort of the age of globalization and the idea of interconnections as being a contemporary phenomenon. But really, Damaloka goes to show quite clearly that there were conversations happening and connections happening across the globe in the late 19th and early 20th century. And in fact, you know, Damaloka sitting in a monastery in Rangoon had just really quite as good access to the ideas that were going around in North America, in Ireland, um, in elsewhere in Southeast Asia. He was deeply interconnected with these. And it also goes to show that while so much of what's been written of the histories of Southeast Asia are national histories, and they're told of 
the anti-colonial fight of the nation, actually the people engaged in those movements had much broader connections. Damaloka's connections and cosmopolitanism come in part because he's reading journals, subscribing to newspapers, writing letters, but they also come from the fact that he's a sailor. And I think one of the things we forget when we think about the cosmopolitanism of middle class, of those who are working in print capitalism, um, of that level, we forget that if the colonial world was an interconnected world for elites, it was only ever connected because there were working class people that connected it. The steamships only operated because you had sailors on those ships. The people transmitting things back and forth actually relied on a much larger network of working class folks who were connected across the globe. And their connections in terms of the ways in which they communicated with each other, the issues that they were interested in are much broader, but very much hidden to the colonial archive. They only pop up with interesting and unique individuals like Damaloka. One of the things I found most interesting, and I will always thank Damaloka for for introducing me to Tavoy, is the fact that, that all of the monasteries he's associated with, where he sets up his mission in Penang, where he sets up his mission in Bangkok, where he is in Rangoon, are all monasteries that are associated with the town of Tavoy, Douay, and the Douay people. Douay isn't necessarily an ethnic category. There is a dialect of Burmese that is Douay. But actually what Douay meant in each of these places really meant people who just had some sort of connection to Douay. It didn't have to be an ethnic marker. It didn't even have to be a religious marker. But once we were able to see and realize the the Douay connection in each of his places, we began to realize that the idea of connections between people from their local town, and Douay is a port city, it was known for shipbuilding and sailing, it was early on a center of the British colonial empire, we began to see the much more working class everyday kind of interactions that happened. So the Tavoy monasteries in each of these places were known for taking in people, anybody who was traveling through. So if you wanted to come to Rangoon for education, for commerce, if you were a petty trader, you might sleep on the floor of the Tavoy monastery when you were there. Eventually, the Tavoy monastery started to take in just about anybody because anybody who was a sailor might have some sort of connection. So we have sailors of uh, American, white American descent. We have African sailors who are staying there. We have much broader groups of people that are coming through. The other part is when you start to think about these networks and these global connections, we forget that there are alliances that people make that might not be necessarily apparent if your main focus has been thinking through the history of the nation or thinking through the history of ethnicity. So working class and poor whites in Asia don't get much discussion in the standard historiography, but they were soldiers of em- in the empire. They were um, they were sailors. They go on to move to other parts of the empire. Um, those who do well and retire might move to Canada, might move to Australia, might move back to the UK, but others, many others, wouldn't have the resources to return. So they lived out their lives in Asia. And in this way, have a really different perspective of what it might mean to be in the colonial relationship. They, of course, held the privilege of white skin, but that didn't mean so much if you were poor. 
you could just as easily be begging on the streets or not have a place to live or be a hobo. So I think these sets of connections, when you can look at the other side, reveal what I think of as a much broader set of networks we should be interested in. Because conversations were happening that don't make it to the pages of sort of elite publications or, or the places that the, the narratives of history that we have have recorded. This is a great place to segue into one of the uh, central themes of the book, uh, what you call working class cosmopolitanism, or I think maybe plebeian cosmopolitanism also. As you just said, when we think of the colonial period and the role of, of the West, we hear a lot about colonial officials, diplomats and merchants, but much less about working class Europeans in the colonial states, the soldiers, the sailors and the labourers, which is really what, what your book is about. People who are called hobos or beachcombers. I actually didn't know where these terms came from. Now I do. So this is a fascinating part of the book. I thought that you show these working class Europeans had actually far more direct interaction with the local indigenous population than did colonial officials. And you, you actually use this to make a, a really, I think, important theoretical point that sort of pushes back against post-colonial readings of Southeast Asian history. That is that these interactions in your words, belie the narratives of inviolable ethnic, religious and national identities that have come to dominate in the post-colonial world. Why was this focus on uh, working class whites in, or plebeian whites, if you like, in colonial Southeast Asia so important to you? It was the world that, that Damaloka came from. It's clearly a world that he had credibility within. And when he first begins ordaining other Europeans, he really draws from that world. And so in our attempts to try to figure out who these other people he ordains might be, we started to look in, in, at this much broader world. And there's a bit of, of really good work on this in South and for South Asia and for India, but there really isn't much out there that just there hasn't been a lot of time spent thinking about the much broader base of laborers, many of them European laborers, that came and were what made the, the machinery of empire operate. And also that set of interactions between that group of people and people across the colonial world of South and Southeast Asia. Those interactions are, are particularly important because the the groups of working class whites would have had much better language access integration they would have had much more interaction with people and as damaloka shows per, may have perceived themselves to have much more in common with a colonized population in particular groups of irish there have a critique of what what british colonialism is that they bring with them so those sets of interactions that sort of turn us on to seeing other things that are happening there We've some really good studies of transnationalism or cosmopolitanism in Southeast Asia. And I, I'm not really sure you can study Southeast Asia without cosmopolitanism in the sense that I think that Southeast Asia has, in any period you pick up, really been a crossroads and a meeting place. And that's often the sort of metaphor for Southeast Asia. And we have some great work on this time period that really looks at middle-class Asians. So the work of Sulin Lewis, Mark Frost, all of uh, those folks, and they're interested in associations and uh, print capitalism, those kind of things. What, what doesn't come through within that is that even those middle-class or print capitalist interactions actually relies on much broader networks. Petty traders, Asian migrants inside uh, inside one colony or from one colony to another. So people who would move from Sri Lanka to Singapore, 
much larger contingents of Chinese and Indian migrants that are in all of the port cities of Southeast Asia, they have their own sets of networks and connections and conversations that are happening. And while we might talk about those ethnic connections and ethnic associations or clan associations, actually their interactions with each other are a much, much broader network as well. So sort of looking at Damaloka as a sailor, his interactions with poor whites, and Damaloka with certain sets of networks there, so the Tavoy Monastery networks, um, groups of petty traders, um, other groups like that sort of opens up this other world in which I think we really need to put some focus and thinking about how identity was constructed, the ways in which networks or connections were understood, who was understood to belong. It's quite clear that in the Tavoy Monastery in Rangoon, you know, it was open to anybody from Tavoy, but that seemed to actually mean Indians, Chinese, African sailors, the idea of who belonged was much, much broader. And in that way, Buddhism becomes a mechanism for Dhammaloka. It becomes his cause, but also he never really sees it as an exclusivist project, right? So in, in his Buddhist cause, he can go to Penang and preach to the Hindu association and speak with uh, Chinese associations and right, work with uh, Confucian intellectual in Singapore None of that is a barrier to Buddhism for him. So he's not interested in exclusivist religious identities. And it's pretty clear the people he's working with don't much care for that either. They have that identity, but that's not at the forefront. Similarly, the ways in which we think of national and ethnic identity were clearly not that important to the much more working class networks that were happening. Interactions of commerce, interactions of trade, Certainly you had connection, ethnic connections and you had connections to your hometown, but ethnicity was not always at the forefront of how people understood each other in this ways. So Dumbaloka for me helps to sort of blow apart the sort of monolithic constructions of identity that we usually study these things through. European men, of course, have been coming to Asia for centuries and many assimilated into the local society, marrying local women and sometimes converting to the local religion. But you point out that during the colonial period, the racial, religious and indeed gender boundaries became much more rigid. Colonial society looked with disdain on Europeans who had gone native since it seemed to symbolise a rejection of the, of the colonial order. An Irishman like Damaloka, who became a Buddhist monk, seemed to both fascinate as well as disturb colonial society at, at this time. Why was this? I think his position as a Buddhist monk, as being ordained and a ceremony of ordination and existing as a monk, as we all well know, is very much placing yourself within a hierarchy and at a lower point in a hierarchy. So he certainly would show respect to any more senior monk around him. So watching a European bow down and show respect to senior monks, show respect to the Buddha, this is disturbing to a politics of colonial hierarchy that's looking to construct an image of white Europeans as the pinnacle of modernity in these constructs, the pinnacle of sort of civilization. Colonial governments spend a fair bit of time and money trying to figure out what to do with working class white men in Asia. They don't want them seen on the streets, so they create sailors' homes. They do their best to sort of put vagrancy laws out because they really don't like the idea that colonized populations might perceive that 
white Europeans are not necessarily superior in these ways, right? The, the idea of impoverishment or working class Europeans is problematic. And Demoloka just hits all of those buttons. The other figure of this time period is Ananda Matea, um, who is a more middle class kind of figure. And he he has a separate monastery built for him. He often eats different food. Demoloka doesn't do any of that. Demoloka lives in uh, your average Burmese monastery. He goes on alms rounds. He only eats Burmese food or only eats Asian food. And all of those markers became problematic for the colonial administration. It was all a threat to the perception that colonialism was working to create, this idea of a civilizing mission, that somehow Europe had something to offer Asia that would push it forward, is completely undercut when you see a man who is critiquing his own society and embracing the society he's come to. Towards the end of the book where you're kind of assessing the significance of, of Damaloka and indeed his popularity, you write that, and I quote, the Europeans were not often not the agents of change in Asia, but at times the front men or even stage props for Asian initiators. At their best moments, they were recognised as allies and accomplices in Asian movements. Do you think that Damalok was was kind of used, maybe that's not quite the right word, but by, by Burmese Buddhists as a kind of weapon of the week against the British colonial authorities? In, in other words, his great popularity was because he was actually kind of being mobilised in a way by the local Burmese Buddhists. Definitely. He could say things they couldn't. He could symbolize what what they couldn't offer. And I think problematically, this book has one man on the cover and it and it looks like a biography and it and it is in some ways. But there's a lot of things that happen in Demoloka's world that are very much not of his agency. So I'm we're, we're always a little cautious about about putting Demoloka out as the agent. Right down to his ordination. When we look at the three European men that are ordained in this time period that make claims on being the first European ordained. We're pretty clear they probably aren't. There's likely, uh, there's clearly other European men ordained as Buddhist monks much earlier. But of the three of them, one named Bhikkhu Ashoka is ordained by a Buddhist Burmese monk, uh, Sayadaw, but while he's in Sri Lanka, because the Sri Lankan orders will not ordain him. Damaloka is ordained in in the same lineage, but ordained in Rangoon. When we go to look at Bhikkhu Ashoka's ordination, it turns out that it's actually a set of competitions between monastic lineages in Burma. There's two offshoot lineages, the Shuijin and the Dwaya. They've both been sending missionaries to Sri Lanka and trying to ordain Sri Lankans in their lineages. And the Thudama, who are the sort of orthodox or the central centralized lineage, send their missionary to Sri Lanka basically for a PR campaign. And as part of this, they happen to ordain this European man, Biko Ashoka. Damaloka is pretty clearly part of the same thing. It's about competition with Thudama and Shuijin. In that way, you know, the story that seems like look, a European man has done this, the first European man ordained, actually, once you pick between the surface, goes straight down to Burmese Buddhist monastic politics. So I think that the question of agency gets interesting and complicated in lots of places. Many of the projects that Damaloka creates for across Asia, so in, in Bangkok, the school he founds, the mission he founds in Singapore, are engaged by people locally because they have local ideas that they want to, to build out with it. And so in many ways, the figure of Damaloka, he, he gets used for the other sets of local projects, and he's embedded within these networks. When I was reading The Irish Buddhist, 
I couldn't help thinking of Joseph Conrad's book, Lord Jim, which is also set in Southeast Asia in, in exactly the same period. It's another story of a, of a working class man with a shameful past who comes to Southeast Asia and redeems himself and you know, earns the respect of the local people. But then he gets caught up in local political intrigues and it all ends in disaster and ultimately with Jim's uh, own death. It's a story of uh, Damaloka, kind of an allegory of, of a certain kind of experience that Western men had in colonial Southeast Asia. There's a good question because the the image of the European monk runs through a handful of narratives of this time period of, of novels or or other stories, and there is a question of the ch- chicken and the egg whether Damaloka and other other hobos, other beachcombers who had ordained as as Buddhist monks actually were a model for this kind of the ways in which this makes it into a literary trope. There's also lots and lots of rumors of Buddhist monks as as spies for either the British or the French or for a local agency. Um, that theme gets picked up in lots of literature as well. I don't know if he's an allegory so much for the kind of experience of European men in Asia, uh, because in many ways, I think he really he is engaged and and as you say, used by local sets of projects for local things. So, so the allegory really would mean that that his impact is vis a vis European society, and I'm I'm not sure that that's really the case. But I think there is something to the story, as well. It's a very open ended story. Maybe I won't give away the ending, but uh, we don't know when Damaloka dies. He just simply disappears. And for a man who's really, really good at self-publicity, he, he is not modest at all. To simply fade out of the history books, I think is is telling us a story that his place wasn't necessarily that of, of great agency within these movements, but that he can tell us something about the world in which he in which he interacted. Before we conclude, we have a traditional question that we ask uh, interviewees. Do you be able to tell us whether you're working on a new project and what that project might be? I am. Uh, the work with Domaloka got me to uh, to start to look at Tavoy. And so part of my new project is, is the, the new research project I have from here is beginning to look at Tavoy and particularly at looking at interreligious and interethnic uh, marriage and cultural interactions there. Eventually, uh, when travel's possible again, I will get into the archives to do that. Right now, I'm finishing a book that really comes out of the crisis in Burma of the past few years and the genocide against the Rohingya. I'm trying to look at the long history of religious identity and religious difference in Burma and think about what are the ways that People have come to understand religious identity as fixed and understood in opposition to a different identity. So when did the identity of Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu become necessary to identity? Because we know in pre-colonial era, we have quite a bit of intermarriage interactions that didn't necessarily take religion as exclusive. And so here I'm working with a lot of critical secular studies and also critical work on the concepts of religious freedom to look at the perception of Buddhism as tolerant or as religiously tolerant, the perception of Buddhism as good for women or particularly freeing to women, and the ways in which those identities became fixed through particular colonial practices and colonial interactions. So it, it will be a, hopefully I'll finish that book this year. I've been working on it for a while, but given the 
political importance of the kind of questions I'm asking, I'm wanting to be particularly careful and, and sort of offer that longer history for folks in Burma to think back. Fantastic. Can't wait to see those projects come to fruition. Alicia Turner, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, co-written with Lawrence Cox and Brian Bocking, The Irish Buddhist, The Forgotten Monk Who Faced Down the British Empire, published this year by Oxford University Press. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts about books that deal with the history of Buddhism in Burma, like Alicia Turner's earlier book, Saving Buddhism, The Impermanence of Religion in Colonial Burma, or Ward Keeler's The Traffic in Hierarchy, Masculinity and its Others in Buddhist Burma. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. <laughs>